everyone, and welcome to Risky Business's coverage of OSSET's 2011 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. Microsoft was kind enough to sponsor this coverage of OSSET's 2011 conference, uh, and as a part of that sponsorship arrangement, we're doing these sponsored podcasts. We've already posted two interviews with Microsoft people uh, talking about various security issues, uh, but we're posting this full talk as well. Now, I'm going to get his name wrong here. Uh, There's no way I'm going to get the pronunciation of this correct, and I'm sure Martin is going to piss himself laughing when he hears me attempt it. But it's Martin van Horenbeek. Horenbeek? I've got no idea. (laughs) He works at the MSRC, the Microsoft Security Response Center. And he manages Microsoft's efforts to share information on security vulnerabilities with third-party security software providers, government agencies, and national CERT teams. And this talk, the one that you're about to hear in basically its entirety, uh, is about how Microsoft applies ratings to its product vulnerabilities. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of rating systems out there. And uh, Martin covers off some of these and discusses how Microsoft boils down its own scores that it uses. I hope you enjoy his talk. Martin Van Horenbeek, or Horenbeck, or something. It's Martin. We all know Martin. Here's Martin. Thank you very much, Eric. And good day, everyone. Thanks for coming. Anyway, so as Eric uh, mentioned, I work in the MSRC, the Security Response Center, and over there I run a little team that mainly works on sharing information on security vulnerabilities with uh, third-party security providers and so on. Sometimes I have been referred to as the arms dealer of Microsoft. I like that because it chimes really well with my accent, but please don't repeat it because if my PR team finds out, I'm in trouble. What I'm going to talk to you about today is about how Microsoft internally rates the risk of security vulnerabilities and how we actually translate that risk to data that actually our customers can use to go and protect themselves. Now, um, the title of this session is not entirely very exciting. And because of that, I spent a lot of time thinking, how can I get across the excitement that is involved with risk management? And I couldn't find a good way to do that until I saw a movie a couple of weeks ago. The movie was called Unstoppable. Who of you has ever seen it? Okay, that's not too many hands. So I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. You will find out how it ends. Um, It's a movie about a train in Pennsylvania. And in 2001, the guy who was driving the train needed to switch the track so the train would go onto another track. Now, what he did was actually not so smart. He didn't make a very good risk decision. He jumped off of his locomotive, and he ran towards the little thing to change it, but by the time he got there, the train was actually already on the wrong track. So it started blistering at 50, 60 miles an hour down the track into rural Pennsylvania, actually in the direction of a couple of pretty big cities. And you'll see how that ends a little bit later down the story. Now, we have to dive into history a little bit to get an idea of how risk ratings have historically been done wrong and how things have changed and actually made them more applicable. If we go back all the way to 1988, in the beginning of the year, there was a little vulnerability that was found in the Finger daemon. Uh, Finger is a little Unix tool that allows you to get information on a particular user on a system. And what you see here is a bit of shell code that essentially, when used um, in an exploit for this vulnerability, would execute a command shell. Now, at the time, these type of vulnerabilities were actually not very well known, and uh, people didn't really understand what the impact of them was. At about the same time, there was another little vulnerability in a very popular demon called Senmail, and I see Scott McIntyre there, who has a lot of history with this tool, uh, smile very loudly, because this was a a pretty big issue. Um, Essentially, a user could send an email, 
And when he sent the email to a particular recipient, uh, something was passed on the command line. And by using set, which allows you to edit the command line, you could actually change that so that you could in, uh, execute arbitrary instructions on the machine just by sending an email. It was pretty clever, but once again, most people never patched because they weren't aware of how these vulnerabilities could be used. Now, in a little bit later in 1988, a very um, well-known later academic in the US uh, wrote something that was called the Morris Worm. And the Morris Worm was a little piece of code that combined these two techniques together with weak passwords, which will actually come back a little bit later in the talk, uh, to replicate across systems and cause different machines uh, to start infecting each other and actually propagate. Now, he also made a small coding error, which made that uh, when a machine tried to infect another machine, it would continue infecting that machine until the machine went down. And at the time, about 6,000 machines all across the internet went down, which was actually just about the entire internet. So it was quite an expensive thing, and it actually prompted the development in the United States of the uh, CERT Coordination Center, which was actually the one first CERT that actually started coordinating security vulnerabilities and assigning ratings even to them as to how important they really were. Now, the big problem at the time was that these vulnerabilities were known, but users had no way of appreciating the risk. Now, you're probably wondering, why is this Microsoft person talking about Unix vulnerabilities? They have plenty of problems of their own. And so, indeed, we have to go a little bit back into our history. And for Microsoft, something very similar happened in the early 2000s. Uh, we were caught suddenly by surprise by a couple of worms that started exploiting vulnerabilities in our platform. And what happened in Pennsylvania with the train in 2001 is at first people were really just trying to keep up with the speeding train and trying to stop it one way or the other. So what you see here is a person trying to jump on the, onto the train from a car that's trying to keep up with it. Now, this isn't always the most effective approach, but it is also what Microsoft tried to do initially. We just tried to fix vulnerabilities one by one as they came along. Now, that was all good and uh, fun until MS01033 showed up. MS01033 was a vulnerability that we addressed in um, an ISAPI extension for the Internet Information Services web server. And this vulnerability allowed an attacker to take over the web server remotely. Now, about a month after we released this security update and addressed this particular vulnerability, Code Red happened. And for those of you that remember it, in uh, 2001, Code Red was a worm that infected Internet Information Services web servers all across the Internet and replaced the main page by a big page that was just black and said, hacked by Chinese. So if you want to call it that way, you could call it the very first uh, APT, as people talk about today. But it was, it was a little bit... Uh, it was a little bit different in a sense that it really just cleaned up a machine, it uh, installed malware, and it changed the web page to reflect something very different. Um, at that point in time, though, Microsoft got a lot of complaints from customers that were uh, facing this particular threat. And they um, noticed that we noticed that the impact of these vulnerabilities was really not negligible. Uh, customers had a lot of concerns. Uh, their services were down. There was time and production uh, cost for them to actually clean up all of these systems. And at that point in time, Microsoft really needed some cultural change to deal with vulnerabilities overall. 
And what we ended up doing initially was we got every, everyone in the company who was even remotely uh, attached to security or had done anything with security, and we got them into major call centers where they were actually helping customers. We wanted developers that usually wrote code to really experience what the pain of you, our customers, was to make sure that they realized this was important. Now, in the train scenario in 2001, what you see here is the police also trying to intervene to stop the, to stop the train. And now this particular train actually had a little button on the side that said emergency stop. And it was for when the train was in the station so that um, a train driver could actually, when he was next to the train, could push this button and the engines would stall or the air brakes would come on. Now in this case, the police tried to help out and stop the train by shooting little bullets at the little button on the side of the train. Now this is actually a pretty smart idea if you think of it, until you realize that that little button, when the train was designed, was actually placed right next to the fuel tank. So it wasn't necessarily the most smart um, risk management decision at that point in time to do this. But in a sense, what we at Microsoft tried to do was we, for a second, we stopped focusing on fixing the vulnerability and we focused on really understanding what the problem was. And that the problem was intrinsic in the way we developed software. And we got all of our developers to do something that essentially didn't help directly, but it did help our customers still by helping them understand how to fix their machines. And at the same time, it really changed the culture. And this is actually what um, some of you may have heard of. Um, in 2003, Bill Gates wrote a memo to everyone at Microsoft saying that security was now one of our primary concerns and something we needed to take into account when we developed software. So at that point in time, um, Microsoft put together a Dragon Slayer team, as I like to call it. Some of the people on that team are, um, for example, Michael Howard, who's written several books on security, Steve Lipner, who was our uh, director of information security or product security at the time. And all of these people were brought together with one goal, to reduce vulnerabilities in Microsoft software. And the way we did that was, first of all, by putting together training for all of our uh, developers. So we created a, a core training package. And just for reference, I do have to be honest that at this point in time, I was one of the customers that was suffering because of the vulnerabilities. I wasn't yet at Microsoft. But um, when I look at what happened in that time frame, we put together a lot of documentation for our developers documentation that started off by really assessing what are the security and the privacy risks of um, our software and where are the real issues. What are the minimum quality gates that our software needs to adhere to before it actually can ship? So we actually said critical security vulnerabilities cannot exist. Important security vulnerabilities must be mitigated by this and this and this. And uh, specific features require additional threat modeling. So in the design phase, uh, we developed some tools to do threat modeling. So threat modeling really is you take an application, you look at how the application interfaces with the outside world, and you define the different tests that each of these interfaces needs to go through in order to be acceptable for release. We did attack surface analysis. We looked at when you install Microsoft Office or Microsoft Windows, what are the changes Office makes on the uh, operating system? What are the things that we need to take into account and the things where we might need to install additional mitigation so those things cannot become threats? For example, when you install a couple of files, are the access control lists on those files sufficiently restrictive to prevent attacks? 
We also looked at the implementation of our software. We specified tools that needed to be run over source code before it could sh uh, ship. We banned certain functions, such as string copy, from our uh, products to make sure that those particular functions were no longer a threat and that they were replaced by safe functions that were less uh, inherently prone to buffer overflows. And we did a lot of static analysis. We had some of our smartest people look at the code before we ship it and sign off on it before we actually release the product. Then we go into a verification phase where every product needs to go through dynamic or fuzz testing. So let's say that you have Microsoft Office. Office opens Word documents. Are we sufficiently certain that Office uh, deals well with malicious Word documents, with Word documents that contain patterns that would possibly crash the software? We also verified our threat models. We had people review whether our threat models really covered the issues that were found during fuzz testing. And then finally, and this is where my team comes in, we define the response plan. Because you can create the best piece of software ever. You can have a piece of software that went through almost unlimited reviews. But in the end, software is built by humans. And it still consists of several hundred thousand lines of code. And uh, these particular lines of code can't all be reviewed in the right context. Because you can't have one developer go to every single line. You have different people do different parts of the code. So you have to do something different there as well. And you need to be prepared that when you ship the product, vulnerabilities will still be found. And you need to be able that you can deal with those vulnerabilities. And that's where the MSRC, or the Microsoft Security Response Center, my team comes in. We deal with security vulnerabilities that are identified after we release the software and after it's in the hand of the users. Um, then finally, we end up in the response stage. After the product ships, the product will have these vulnerabilities, and we need to have a team on staff that can deal with issues when they're exactly identified. So in total, there's really three different cycles. There's education, where we train all of our developers to write secure software. There's technology and process, where we build the technology that helps us identify vulnerabilities and fix them. And finally, there's accountability. After we ship the product, we are still responsible for security vulnerabilities in it, and we need to address those so that our customers can be protected against them. So this took actually a long time, and at Microsoft, our developers were really refocused from writing new features to doing the security thing, and then writing new features with this additional knowledge in mind. And important to know is that this process, which we actually call the SDL, or the uh, Secure Development Lifecycle, is something that continues to move throughout Microsoft. So every six months, we release new iterations of this SDL that take into account new things that are found. For example, when a new vulnerability is found that is really a new class of vulnerabilities, we make sure that that new class, that we have tools to identify those vulnerabilities, and that we go ahead and find them when we release the next feature. Uh, so that things that happen once are actually taken into account in that internal learning process. Now, how does Microsoft work when a security vulnerability is identified? Um, we have a team called MSRC, which is where I work, that receives vulnerability reports through many different, uh, different, in, different ways. We get, we get uh, reports from individuals, uh, researchers that find security vulnerabilities and send them to us, which is absolutely great. They tell us before they tell other people that there's a problem, and they work with us so that we can fix it in time to protect customers. And then we usually do a coordinated release with them. We also have quite a few people, of course, that find vulnerabilities and that put them on mailing lists such as full disclosure, generally between Christmas and New Year, which is um, the less preferred option because it generally means that my Christmas is gone. 
together with most of my team. But it's another way that we receive vulnerabilities. And finally, we actually get quite a few reports from our customers and partners as well. For example, the CERT teams internationally that are trying to work with our software and they notice something that they feel is not right. And they contact us and we work with them to actually get it fixed. We respond to every single vulnerability report within 24 hours. Um, the internal response can actually take a little bit longer because when something comes in, we have to prioritize. And if something looks like it's a wormable issue, something that can take over machines without user interaction, at that point in time, we're going to prioritize that really high and spend a lot of effort and time on it. Whereas something that looks like it's an information disclosure bug, so some um, less meaningful information is disclosed to users, that might take a little bit more time before we really get to working on it. But as a rule, we do respond to everyone within 24 hours to make sure that they know that we're working on it. At that point in time, we perform the first step of our incident response process, and that's the triage. Uh, the vulnerability comes in, for example, through email. Our team looks at the vulnerability, and they try to assess if everything that this researcher has written to us is true. Does this meet our bar for a vulnerability? And if it does, we open a case, we send a case number to the researcher that reported it, and we start working on identifying and reproducing the vulnerability across all of the different products that we support for our customers. We also rate that vulnerability according to severity and likelihood that the vulnerability is to be exploited. So severity in this case is how important the vulnerability really is when it is exploited. Like, does it take over the entire system, or does it just allow you to access some information? And we use that to assign our internal priority. Now, you see two different roles here, and that actually indicates two different teams that work on these vulnerabilities. At the top, you have uh, the MSRC operations team, which is really a group of program managers, um, actually not all that technical, who work on um, working with the researcher and making sure that they are uh, pleased with the response, that we do all the necessary to get the vulnerability fixed. And at the bottom, what you see is our MSRC engineering team, and they'll play a pretty big role in the rest of the presentation. So the uh, operations PMs, what they do is they manage the relationship with our researchers, our finders. They create the content, so the security bulletin that we finally release, and then they're responsible for actually releasing the security update that you then install and that protects our customers. At the bottom, the MSRC engineering team actually has a much more important role in a sense. Um, when the vulnerability initially comes in, at Microsoft we have a rule that vulnerabilities need to be fixed by the developers that made them. So let's say that there's a vulnerability that is reported in um, Outlook, for example. Then we actually want the Outlook team to fix the vulnerability and not our security team. But we do want our security team to validate what the Outlook team finds because they have expertise in exploiting security vulnerabilities. So that team knows exactly how important this vulnerability is. So what happens is there's actually a Chinese wall between the security researchers in the engineering team and the product team. And both get us mission to reproduce the security vulnerability. They both look at the vulnerability, they try to reproduce it, they try to crash several systems, and they try to find out whether the root causes this format string bug or maybe it's just a stack overflow. And uh, once both of them have their own assessment, um, my team has a key and we have a room. And we put both of the teams in that room until they agree on what the actual root cause of the vulnerability is. Now, this may not uh, help my human rights record, and, and it will never get me uh, nominated for a human rights or peace prize, but we do keep them locked in there until they finally, finally figure out what the real vulnerability is. And I do feed them pizza. 
Once they find out what the vulnerability is, we let them out of the room and uh, they can go ahead and go and fix it. And at that point in time, the engineering team has this responsibility to find variants of that vulnerability. So similar vulnerabilities in the same piece of code and actually make sure that those get fixed as well. The engineering team also does something very important in that they release technical guidance on the vulnerability. So they do a couple of things. They release guidance that helps our partners, such as uh, security vendors like McAfee, Symantec, Trent Micro. Uh, through the MAP program, we share information with them uh, that allows them to address uh, or rather build signatures that are more generic than just for one particular piece of malware, but that actually allow them to detect exploitation of a particular vulnerability. The MAP program, or Microsoft Active Protections program, is the way that we share this information with the security community. And finally, the engineering team also inputs uh, feedback into our developer tools, into the SDL, to make sure that these fixes are also uh, included. Now, the engineering team is also responsible for rating our vulnerabilities. And the way that we rate vulnerabilities internally is by using something called the bug bar. And this is an example of a bug bar that's actually on our MSDN website. And this doesn't reflect entirely what we do internally, but it's a, a quick description of what type of vulnerabilities would rate critical or important. So if you look here, critical, the ability to execute arbitrary code or obtain more privileges than intended uh, remotely. So the uh, code red vulnerability that we looked at earlier would clearly mark critical here. Now there's a problem with rating risk, and that problem is cognitive bias. In the case of our little train, when another train was moving towards it, they immediately moved that other train to a sidetrack. Now they knew that the sidetrack was um, actually not long enough for that train, so the end of the train would get pushed aside and pushed off the trail, uh, or off the track rather, by the other train, by the train that was actually out of control. Now, this might be a good decision or it might not be a good decision. If the last few carriages are carrying some type of dangerous content, then you do not want to do this. So which, which actually brings us to the fact that our reality is, always has boundaries. There are boundaries to what we know and there are boundaries to what we actually um, are aware of and what we take into account when we do a risk assessment. Also, uh, certain heuristics apply as cognitive biases. So to summarize, cognitive biases are really places where people think they're making the right decision, but they're actually not thinking the decision true as well as they think they are. So they think they have a perfect solution, but there are certain things that actually came into play and that made this quite difficult for them. Um, some of these heuristics are representativeness. Recent events are always more important than older events. For example, if you think about um, safety of nuclear power plants, after Chernobyl, the risk of nuclear power plants for a while was considered to be not acceptable. Then when, um, when um, global warming became a big problem, suddenly nuclear power looked like a pretty good solution to many of these issues. And now with the Fukushima reactor, um, it's again a problem. So we're always influenced by things that happened in the recent past and by the fact that our reality is really bounded. With risk decisions in particular, we always try to make decisions based on the fact that we try to reduce risk to zero as opposed to reducing risk from 50 to 20%. So we're never really pleased with a solution that fixes 80% of the problems unless it's antivirus. Um, the only real solution to these problems is something called reference class forecasting. And reference class forecasting was actually something developed in the intelligence community. And it consists of that you take a set of previous events you take the decisions that were made and the outcomes and you compare it to what you're trying to do today and you make your decision based on that. The problem with this is that it doesn't cover everything. Sometimes things happen that you don't expect. 
and this was one of them. CVE 2009-2510 was a uh, vulnerability that allowed spoofing through a Windows component called the Crypto API. And actually, it was a little bit wider than this. Um, this was a vulnerability that came up in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. And the issue here was that in C, the programming languages, strings are usually terminated with a null character. Now, what happens if you create an X509 um, certificate that contains a common name that says www.microsoft.com slash zero.badguy.com? You have the null character in the middle of the string. Well, this shouldn't have to be a problem because this clearly isn't a valid uh, common name, and the common name defines the website, for example, that you're going to. And this was an issue that actually existed not just in crypto API, but also in a lot of other uh, crypto libraries, such as NSS and so on. Now, the problem here is that you actually need an issue on the client front. So Windows would need to cut off at the uh, slash null. So see the certificate is valid for Microsoft.com. And at the same time, your certificate authority needs to sign the, the invalid request and interpret it as www.microsoft.com.badguy.com. So the interpretation needs to be different for this to be, to be a valid problem. So at the time, this vulnerability was reported to us. We contacted some of the CAs in the industry. We contacted some of the other crypto library uh, developers. And all of us kind of agreed that this was unlikely to be exploited in real life. So we decided to fix it. But um, at that same time, we also decided not to consider it the super, super highest priority issue we had, because we thought exploitability would be very low. And there was very little risk of it being used in the wild. Now, July 30, 2009, this vulnerability was uh, discussed at the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas in the US. And um, nothing really happened for a couple of months until October 7, 2009, when someone actually found a certificate authority that did this quite differently than most of the crypto libraries and actually signed the certificate for PayPal.com. And this certificate was distributed on a website um, or rather on a mailing list of a uh, US hacker lab. Now, at that point in time, we had the fix almost ready. We immediately prioritized it, and we released it on October 13, 2009. And there were some mitigating reasons here, which made this a little bit less of a threat. But still, at that point in time, we were um, clearly not entirely correct with our risk assessment, because there were scenarios where this could happen. So after that, we got very cautious about these types of SSL vulnerabilities. And another issue struck, CVE 2009-3555. This was a bug in TLS renegotiation that was actually very widely discussed in the ISP community uh, now about a year and a half ago. And this vulnerability was quite interesting because it allowed an attacker to do a man-in-the-middle attack on a connection and introduce data at the beginning of an SSL session. So the way this works is the client starts up a TLS handshake with the man-in-the-middle host. The man-in-the-middle host keeps the client waiting by not actually responding to that handshake. Then he would set up a TLS handshake with the server, the, the legitimate server, so the e-banking site that the client would want to connect to. He would send some application data to the website. And at that point in time, either the man in the middle or the website would be in initiating a renegotiation triggered by the man in the middle. And the man in the middle would really just feed that renegotiation back to the client. And to the client and the server, it looks like there was really only one connection established between the client and the server. But in fact, the man in the middle introduced some data into the connection stream at the beginning. And that data would actually be parsed later on after authentication was successfully complete. So this vulnerability actually didn't allow the attacker to read what was on the SSL stream. But it did allow the attacker to introduce some data at the beginning of the session. 
Now, this vulnerability was really very unlikely to be exploited, especially on Windows, because uh, Internet, Internet Information Services 6 and 7, our web server, did not support client-initiated uh, renegotiation. So the man in the middle could not initiate or trigger a renegotiation. And the only reason why the server might do that is if certificate-based mutual authentication is used. So the client has to authenticate with a certificate to the server, which is quite uncommon. And also, the attacker would still need to break the authentication protocol, for example, cookies. Now, it didn't take long for someone to figure out how to do this. They would just send the transaction. What you see in bold, in white bold, is the initial transaction data that's actually passed from the man in the middle to the server. And the man in the middle just adds a little header, says, X ignore this line, which doesn't really exist, but make sure that the server drops the last request. And then the data is actually passed together with the actual cookie coming from the client. Now, this actually wouldn't really work in 99% of all scenarios because most sites build in uh, protection by using, for example, hidden forms to protect against an attack called cross-site request forgery. And so any website that is protected against cross-site request forgery, which for internet banking sites is an important problem, would actually be protected against this particular type of attack. But still, of course, we released an update for this issue um, and we actually prioritized it pretty highly because we didn't want to take any risks with, the, uh, with SSL issues because we knew that we had made a, an internal incorrect assessment in the past. So that's really what we do internally, how we assess risk. But how do we now qualify that to our customers? Well, in the case of the train, it wasn't all that difficult. Helicopters from the news media were quickly circling around the train, and every single risk management action that was taken by the police or the train owner was pretty much well advertised. Now, in our bulletins, we actually changed quite a bit if you compare to MS01032, uh, 33, 10 years ago. We started listing out in the bulletins which systems are most likely to be affected by a particular vulnerability, and we also started clarifying whether, for example, exploit code was in the wild, and also give more information on the actual vulnerability. We also um, clarified per platform exactly what the rating of the vulnerability is. And for reference, this is actually our, in, our, sorry, our external way that we uh, qualify these ratings. So by looking at this, you can get an idea of why a certain uh, bulletin is critical, why another bulletin is important. And we do this per platform. But we knew that we had to do something more because we released quite a few security bulletins. You may have seen that two months ago we had a record month with, uh, quite, with I think, somewhere close to 37 CVEs that we uh, released fixes for. And we needed to give customers a better way of prioritizing between these different fixes. So we built something which is called the Exploitability Index. Before I head into that, another little train story. In this case, they tried to stop the train by derailing it. So they actually put in place little derailers on the track that would push the train off the track. But the problem is that if you don't know the exact weight of the train and you don't know the speed, you don't know which derailer to use. And this is why we started looking at the exploitability of vulnerabilities. It's our way of qualifying better how exploitable issues really are. The exploitability index was developed as a little tool that we could give to customers that states how likely it is a vulnerability will be exploited in the next 30 days. We get that number together through internal research, but also by involving some of our external partners. And in the end, we just try to predict in the 30 days after release, how likely is it that exploit code will appear. And that will give customers the ability to really predict which vulnerabilities um, are most likely to impact them together with the criticality rating or the severity rating. 
So when we release a bulletin today, you have the bulletin severity rating that indicates how, in, how high the impact of the vulnerability really is if it's being exploited. And then we also provide some data on how likely it is that it is being exploited. And we have three ratings. Consistent exploit code likely, or one, is the biggest issue because that means that within 30 days, we expect exploit code to appear in the wild. It goes all the way down to functioning exploit code unlikely, which really indicates that we think that exploit code is really not going to happen. We also include some key notes that actually explain on different platforms how this, uh, how this actually takes place. Now, I have a, an example for you of an exploitability index rating. This was actually a vulnerability that was uh, exploited by the Stuxnet malware last year. And this particular vulnerability um, consisted of a user actually printing a file, but the print spooler printing it a system, temporarily writing it to the Windows System 32 slash uh, directory. And the attacker can influence where to put the file. Now, um, with this particular bug, it was actually really easy, really rep reproducible to put this particular file on the system. And another part of Windows uh, actually checks a particular directory for new files and executes them when they appear. Now, this doesn't have to be a problem because a regular user can never write a file to this directory unless they had exploited this particular vulnerability. So this was really easy to exploit across all platforms. Now, we don't have that much time, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit further. Um, the exploitability index rating, we've been doing this since September 2008, or rather October 2008, and so far we've had three situations where we had to make a major change. So we actually had to edit the exploitability index rating after we released it. The reason for this is because while we have very smart people actually working on identifying the exploitability of these particular vulnerabilities, there are scenarios where we are just wrong or where there are very smart researchers in the outside world that actually know quite well who, how to exploit these issues and develop new techniques. To give you an idea, this can change in a positive sense. For example, in April of this year, we uh, fixed an existing ASLR bypass in um, .NET that could be used for vulnerabilities in Internet Explorer. And a little bit earlier than that, we uh, end of last year, we had a vulnerability in the ISFTP server, which we thought was really not exploitable until actually a fresh out of school researcher at a uh, security company had a really smart idea and defied the entire security industry by showing how it could be exploited. Uh, needless to say, we had a really good conversation with him afterwards to understand how he did this because it was really very, very clever. This month, we also made a change to the exploitability index. So we're actually including a different rating for the latest platform to showcase uh, how the latest platform actually includes additional mitigations. For example, ASLR, which is a memory randomization mitigation, exists on Windows Vista and above, but not on XP. So we want to reflect, if you run Windows Vista or Windows 7, how much better you're actually protected against these issues. And we did some reviews, over 256 ratings, about 37% of those ratings showed that the latest platform was a little bit better protected. So that's a good thing. Now, risk also doesn't just apply to the vulnerability. You also need to be able to use it in your environment. So uh, the first, or the Forum of Instant uh, Response and Security teams built a standard called CVSS, or the Common Vulnerability Scoring System. And they actually added something really interesting, which is an environmental metric uh, which allows you to say, I have X percent DNS servers, so this vulnerability is this important to me. It's something that we at Microsoft are not yet publishing because we're trying to find a good way of doing this without causing too much confusion around it because there's often a lot of debate on which rating is really accurate. 
Um, other factors, specific deployments and configurations, such as do you have DEP enabled on, your, on all your systems? Do your uh, machines use protected mode on Internet Explorer? They all have, make, an, an, uh, make a difference in how your systems are actually protected against a particular vulnerability. And a simple metric often does not work. Vulnerabilities require interpretation and chained exploits, so using multiple exploits in sequence can actually make your life a lot more difficult. In the end, what we're really trying to do at Microsoft is to make sure that we have enough technical detail available for you and for your partners, such as the CERT teams, to make a good assessment and slow the train down just enough so that it can actually make it to the corner without anything bad happening. Because when you have these toxic tanks and you need to take a turn at 75 miles an hour, it doesn't usually work all that well. So, as a brief conclusion, rating vulnerabilities is an engineering effort, and we understand that. We have our team working on these ratings every month uh, to get you more technical feedback, more technical information. They actually have a blog at blogs.technet.com srd, where they talk about the exploitability of particular issues. And the goal of that is to really give you some data points to take into account. And then finally, software is a component, but the real target of the attackers is not the software, it's your network. So take that into account when you look at the vulnerabilities and uh, prioritize them for deployment. And also think about how to threat model your network. Um, vulnerabilities are one thing, but social engineering is also quite important. So take that into account. These are some of the people that worked on the assessments that I mentioned in the uh, presentation. And finally, if you have any questions or feedback, or you have ideas on how Microsoft can help you better, uh, whether you're a CERT team like Ossert or whether you're a customer of ours, then please send me an email and I'd love to have a conversation with you on how we rate our vulnerabilities and how we can maybe do it better for you in the future. Thanks very much.